Welcome to Yimby Nation, a podcast exploring U.S. housing and the roadblocks to building more equitable neighborhoods. Join Jimmy, Peter, and V as they, and special guests, offer their unique perspectives on building more diverse communities and addressing the social problems that emanate from the lack of decent, safe, and affordable housing. Our hosts have served in the fields of advocacy and nonprofit, public, and private development, and are driven by their passion for community empowerment. Join the conversation and share your thoughts on social using hashtag YimbyNation. Welcome back, Yimby Nation, to part two with Valerie White. I was reading this publication entitled The Wealth of Two Nations, the U.S. Racial Wealth Gap, 1860-19 to 2020. I'm just always astounded by the gap between Blacks and Whites. I was looking here, it says in 1860, the gap was 56 to 1. And then today is 6 to 1. And the report goes on is, you know, a black uh, social professor, Laura Daring court she's at uh, Princeton, mm-hmm. and talks about if there were none of these um, barriers in terms of, you know, segregation and all the things we talk, think about, that the gap would be three to one. It's down to me that this gap is so embedded in, in our history. And right. then we think of things like reparation, and I often think about that and I go, but when I read this report, I, I just realized that the, the most gain in closing this gap was during 1860 to 1970 after Reconstruction. Right. And that's when Blacks were really able to begin to earn money on property. But also, something else to close that gap was that 15% of white wealth came from owning uh, slaves. Right. So we have these issues, these things that are embedded in, in our history. And I know you're doing a lot at LISC. You're way out in the forefront of helping to address these disparities. But, I mean, give us some philosophical inquiry into this issue. We talked a lot about the Pacific program, but give us some thoughts on, you know, on where we're going with this, this wealth disparity. Well, I don't know where we're going, and I don't know where we can go until... The society as a whole, and when I say the society, I mean the American society, uh, comes to grip, right, with our history that these disparities, these inequities are so ingrained in everything that we do in this country that we're 400 years and still, you know, in a place where we have these inequities. And Jim, you talked a little bit about reconstruction and the changes and the ability to own. And, if you know, of course, people were running for office and they were, you know, congressmen and and the like for that short period of time when there was an eradication of, you know, white wealth because of the, the movement of the slaves. But you see how quickly that got turned around, right? In a matter of a few years, right? Because this couldn't be because we are still ingrained in this, this space that this inequity is something that uh, should be, you know, acknowledged as what has been built, you know, in our country. So we'll have times, right, during our history 
when society will say, oh, this is not good or it's terrible or whatever. And, uh, you know, in, in more recent times, you think of when Emmett Till and that new movie is out right now, got killed and, you know, his mother showed his body in that horribly disfigured state. And everybody was upset for a minute and then they went back or, you know, just coming to equity during um, Martin Luther King and marching. If it were not for television, right, there would be no Civil Rights Act because you can't turn away from hoses and dogs. But then we went right back. You know, we had Eric Gardner. And of course, I'm skipping over so many other things. And then that people were upset, but uh, they weren't that upset. They were really upset watching that policeman put his, you know, knee in the neck of that gentleman for nine months, George Floyd. So then now we want equity, but now everybody's forgetting about it again, right? Because it is just ingrained in our society. So unless there is a full acknowledgement of the fact that our systems have been designed to specifically have this disadvantage and reparative approach to systems upgrades. And when you talk about reparations, people automatically assume it's just money, right? But it isn't. It's a reparative approach to the systematic way that we approach finance and homeownership and education and community. It has to be repaired. So that might mean it might mean some people get money. It might mean some people get not more of an advantage, but to move them to equity, a different view of, of an advantage to something that they didn't have because they were in a, an equitable place. There has to be that acknowledgement. So philosophically, it seems like I want to talk today, right now, the 31st of October, 2022, and we have an election looming in eight days. Do I think philosophically things will change? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, you know, it's just hard to tell. So the hope comes from, right, the continual discussion of it, the ability to, you know, put these small measures in front and, you know, just sticking to the mission and the alignment and the movement of equity. Jim, you mentioned that report. I, you know, had read The Color of Money right? A while ago, that was from, I don't want to mispronounce the name, I have it up here because that was one of the questions, Baradaran, right? That's Baradaran. And just understanding that gap and that there's, you know, that's the Black banking, you know, gap that there is, but it just isn't everything. Even if you want to sell your house, your the appraiser is going to look at it differently. So it's systematically designed to keep certain people away from attainment of wealth. So there has to be an acknowledgement. And then once the acknowledgement is made by society, you know, implementation and execution of that fairness, and that would include reparative programming. It would include, you know, maybe some monetary, and monetary doesn't just mean writing someone a check. It might mean ensuring that that developer, right, in the program I'm talking about gets alone. And maybe we don't charge them the 7% or whatever that you have now because we want to give them an opportunity. So they get zero, right? And if they do well a couple of times, then they could, they're at equity and they would get the market rate. Maybe those are the type of things that we need to be thinking about, but whether or not it's implementable or even the desire to execute it, that I don't know. So we just have to list, we just have to keep on doing what we're doing and hope for the best. 
Change seems to come very slowly. It feels like attempting to address the kind of systemic and institutional racism that you're addressing is generational. But I'm curious, given the times we live in, what in your work or in this society gives you hope? I think it's when we actually execute on things and we see or hear from, you know, uh, folks in the community who have benefited. And it doesn't even have to be anything that we've done directly at LISC. So um, the other day I was at uh, Habitat for Humanity in New York and Westchester. They had their gala. You know, they were gracious enough to honor me and my team along with some other folks. But then, you know, they had one of their homeowners association come up and talk about that association's just fight to hang on to that co-op that they had. It was on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. And when she said, I said, okay, I know exactly where that is. And just over time, you know, they just, you know, were not getting the financial assistance and all that to the point that some investor, which is a big thing, right? Investors buying up properties in these neighborhoods and, and then either reselling them or renting them at these high rates was trying to buy their property. So they went to Habitat and Habitat helped them and they kept it. And the whole co-op board was there and they were telling their story. They're crying, the audience crying. We all crying. But it's like, you know, that in and of itself, even if it's that small win, is enough to keep one going. And so, you know, change is slow. I don't even know if I could say change is slow to come because we're talking about, again, 400 or so years, right, of oppression. And, and we're still at this huge gap that really hasn't changed much o- over time. So we have to really, you know, just hang on to what's there because we have no choice. And if we didn't, then it would be very difficult to do this. It would be difficult to just exist, right, in a business context. So I feel like it always seems like change is so painfully slow in coming. But if you look at things, like if you look at the way things were, let's say, last year, if you look at it from that bigger picture, I think there's a lot of changes. Now, it seems like it's increments as we do it, but it's really on the grand scheme, it's, it's big. It's just, it's taking a while. It will take well, a while. I so do, much but change. I also think we have to be cautious about the optimism because we also, you know, have to be concerned, right, about sort of the political environment that we're in and how the broader society views looking at equity in a certain way. And we're at a very polarized state right now in this country, dangerously polarized. I mean, it's so bad that the Speaker of the House, her husband can't even sleep in a bed without somebody breaking in. And, you know, so I hear you, V, that there are changes. The danger is whether or not it's going to start to back up the other way, right? And we've seen the decisions of the, the court, you know, over this, that last session, just in terms of rights or the like that seemingly, you know, one could interpret as um, moving rights backward. So, you know, again, this is where we are. And the, the key for us in this industry is to be concerned, to advocate, advocate for policy and legislation that bring about equity, but put our head down and do this work in whatever little piece that we can contribute uh, to it is, you know, is a win. I believe the work that um, Liz is doing is so vital. It's so vital. 
And I know we sort of answered some of these questions before, but given that many of these disparities emanate from systematic issues like racism and poor schools and distressed communities, I can't help but wonder, can LIS really have a meaningful impact reducing these disparities? And I'll tell you the reason why. So a good friend of mine who passed away told me something, and I really believe that because I didn't think about it growing up in developing country in Ghana. He told me here he's an African-American. He was an African-American, um, Charlie, Jimmy, you know, Charlie Tisdale. And he said, V, it takes three things to grow a child, to grow a community. It takes the home, it takes the community, and it takes the school. So a parent can love their child and want the best for them. But if they step outside and they're students, then you need all three to sort of balance, right? Or if it's a great community, but the household is poor or they have the great household and the community is great, but the school system, they don't have the best education system. All of that contributes to the child. And as and, and the same thing applies to the economic growth when we become adults and whether we are trying to become economically stable, whether we're trying to move on to the next level, we are always going to be at these three things. And so that asks my question again. I know that Liz is doing such a great job, but sometimes can you help but wonder if the racism and the poor public schools and the distressed communities can let's really have a meaningful impact in reducing this disparity? And how do you think that can happen in the long term? Well, we approach, I think I said earlier, we we approach everything as an ecosystem, right? And that all of the there are certain elements that can impact the community. And that in, it starts with housing as the foundation because you can have a good job, you can own it. But if you don't have anywhere to, to for your home foundation to lay down, to bring your family together in a way that to have a support, then everything else is lost. So that's the first part of our ecosystem. The second is, you know, economic development. And that's a little bit broad, but we're looking at it at community by community. When I say community by community, I mean like Harlem, East Buffalo, Brownsville, and we we support everything within those insular communities to grow community development. So commercial infrastructure, commercial quarter, small businesses in a distinct community generally make up about 98% of the workforce development, the jobs in that community. So when you, you have that, people who live there have the opportunity for jobs. And that takes away some of the other things. So if so-and-so has had their store in the community for 20 years and they know Ms. Jones' grandson is having a little bit of trouble and he need a job, that's where he goes to the store because they're friends. Again, that's community. When we invest in, in education, right? So we invest in schools, uh, charter school development is one of the places where we give loans that brings education to the community. We provide investment to community uh, nonprofits that provide, you know, wraparound services for education development. And that's where we will, the, some of the funds I talked about earlier that we raise for funders will be put in a program that supports workforce development, that also supports a small business. And then we are are working with the developers to build the homes and the commercial real estate. And those developers or contractors, they hire from their community. So we attack it in small insular community initiatives. 
and tie all of the different initiatives or things, people or organizations that we support together. So we're very intentional and strategic about that because you need all of those elements. And again, I'll go back to that work at, at NYCHA when we were working with the Hope Six program. That was the vision, right, that we used in order to build an entire community. And, and then it was surrounded around a particular public housing development and supplemented with a rehabilitation or some new units within that public housing. So you have to have all of those things working in unison and investing them simultaneously. And sometimes it requires working with all of the parties within that small community uh, to getting them to, uh, okay, you have to all, we all got to work together here because this is all for this community. And sometimes it's, you know, it's not always easy. And that's the community engagement part of community development. So that's how we approach it. So maybe little pockets at a time, we're starting to work with a uh, mayor, uh, Sean Patterson Howard up in Mount Vernon right? On that, starting with a commercial quarter, and then we're going to be meeting with Westchester Community College, and we're talking about housing. So same, same way of putting that all together. But if we're investing in things that touch each other and take care of all those elements, then that's where we expect to see the progress. Nice. Thank you. Thank you for that. Valerie, I'm very proud of what you're doing. You are making that impact little by little, and that's the only way the impact can be made. There's no panacea. There's no home run. It's just, uh, you know, baseball is one thing a lot of time, right? Yeah, slow ball. So, you got to play that slow ball, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so, again, this has been very enlightening, and I think three of us here are all involved in the same, have the same aspiration that you do. I think we look forward to continuing to work with you, and I guess the question is, how should people get in contact with you and or your staff to get assistance from you and your organization? I mean, who do they call and where do they call? Yeah, well, there's a couple of ways to stay abreast of what we're doing. The first is our website, which is www.lisc.org uh, backslash NYC. We will be changing that in a couple of months. We'll just be backslash NY and it'll feature, you know, our activities across the state. But it's www.liscLISC.org backslash NYC. We are very active on social media platforms, in particular LinkedIn and Facebook, and all of our upcoming programs, our activities, our policy statements, how we're advocating, the work that we're doing are very much featured on those platforms. And then folks can reach out to me. My email is bwhite, I like Valerie, bwhite at lisc.org. And depending on their need, I will connect them with the right person on my team. There's like 25 of us now. So we're here and available for, for folks. Yeah, I'm going to Ghana in a few days. Any okay. message for Accra? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Tell them I'll be back. I went, my fraternity brothers hosted me over there. He has a travel agency specifically 
for, you know, people in the divine nine. And so he did a great job. So everybody that goes, all of my friends that go over there, we go over with uh, African Roots Travel. But I'm dying to go back. I was deciding, should I go to Afrocello? But I don't know, I'm getting a lot old. It'll be a lot of activity, so I'll go back again. But uh, Ghana was, I had such a good time there and it was just a really great experience. So I'm very glad to hear. So I will tell you all, Jim is being a little bit modest, but there are a number of us that came out of that group, right? You had a really good group, Jim, you remember, right? Yes, I did. Uh, That have gone on to do like tremendous things in this industry, but we always attributed to that work we did. I'm going to tell you all a little secret about him before I hang up. So we would be like working, working, working. We're like, Jimmy, it's not going to work, whatever. He's like, listen, just take 10 things. And if six of them get get halfway there and you do four of them, then you did great. And he said, just keep going, right? So that is my mantra to everybody. Just keep going. And if you get four things done well out of the 10 that you wanted and six went halfway, then you are in good shape. Thank you so much. It was wonderful having you. Thanks for joining us and listening to today's episode of Yimby Nation. Continue the conversation in your communities and on social using hashtag YimbyNation. Connect with V at www.vaceconstruction.com. Connect with Jimmy at www.sincereconsulting.com. And connect with Peter by searching Collaborative Development Consulting on LinkedIn.com. Please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform so we can continue helping communities thrive. Email us at contact at yimbynation.com or visit the podcast website at www.yimbynation.com. Until next time.